28 years ago this coming March. It was the, the first Sunday in March. I'm not sure what the date was. Um, but uh, we were, uh, the church had just begun. We were, what, two months old, I guess, started in January. So just entering our third month of, of the church and uh, meeting in an elementary school in Mission Viejo. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon me during the service in a, in a very unusual way, uh, nothing I had ever experienced before uh, till that time. I had an experience that was uh, similar to what uh, the Bible tells us about in Acts chapter 10, where Peter fell into a trance and had a vision. Um, that happened to me. I, I fell over um, on my face on the floor, and, and um, uh, the Lord appeared to me, and and Jesus told me some things. He said some, uh, I won't get into the whole thing of what he said, but um, he told me some things that we were doing right as a church and some things that we were doing wrong. And I was considering something that he, he uh, warned me against. And, uh, and then he said this. He said, uh, I've called you and sent you to establish this church on the development of the human spirit. And then he made mention of Brother Hagin and some other folks that he had put in my life uh, and he said that he would bring others to me as well that uh, uh, I had specifically gotten something from in the area of spiritual development. And it's uh, it's been interesting how that uh, um, over the period of time that uh, I've been pastoring, how God would bring somebody into my life uh, that I didn't know, somebody just kind of out of the blue, just a real a diversity of um, uh, ways that it that it happened. In several cases, it was right at the end of, of men's lives who had been in ministry for a long time. George Starmutt, we uh, we got to know him the last couple of years of his life. Uh, Guy P. Duffield, uh, Dr. Duffield from Foursquare Gospel, got to know him the last couple of years of his life. And both of those guys um, put something into me as, uh, uh, as far as uh, spiritual development was concerned. And so there's been, uh, there's been some th- several things, a lot of things along the way through the years uh, that the Lord has added to me in this, uh, this regard. Um, I used to, don't, don't do it anymore. Don't really want to do it anymore, but, um, uh, used to teach in Bible schools different, uh, in different parts of the world. And, um, uh, I've taught in Bible schools in Estonia and Sweden and Italy and France and maybe some other places as well. And, and every one of those places, uh, when they've invited me, they've asked me to teach on the development of the human spirit. And it's not because anybody knew that Jesus appeared to me in that regard, or I never told anybody except our church, and and um, you know nobody outside of our church family would have known that. So that would have been a relatively small group of people, but uh, but it was something that uh, uh, that God's always drawn me toward, and um, and I don't know where you hear anything about that anymore these days. Brother Hagen used to teach on it some, well, a great deal compared to everybody else, I guess, but who teaches on it now? I don't know of anybody. And um, and for that reason, the development of the human spirit, in, in my estimation, you judge it for yourself, but in my estimation is the, the least acknowledged aspect of the Christian life of anything that I know of. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, we'll use as a text. Paul is pray, praying um, or lets them know, really it's more of a desire, not praying per se, but he's letting the church know what his desire is and what uh, what God prompts him to desire for us as believers. And notice what he said. He said, in the very God of peace, sanctify you wholly. Now, the word holy is W-H-O-L-L-Y. In other words, it means completely. So he's talking about the completeness of man. Everything that he's going to say 
beyond this point is identified as the complete makeup of man. He said, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly or completely. And I pray, pray is in italics. It's just saying this is the desire that I have prompted by the Holy Ghost. And I pray God your whole, W-H-O-L-E, complete, in other words, entire, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's one thing I want you to see right off the bat, and that is before we get into any of the, the spiritual stuff and, and you know, the, the, the definition of spirit, soul, and body or anything like that, please notice the fact that he said that he prays or he, his, his, his desire, his God-given desire, that their whole, entire spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless. He didn't say that it was going to happen automatically. If it was going to happen automatically, why would God give him a desire to let them know about their com- their complete threefold nature of man, spirit, soul, and body to be preserved blameless? In other words, what I'm, tra- what I'm trying to get at and what we're going to explore throughout this series is what man's responsibility is to keep his spirit, soul, and body blameless before Jesus comes. Wouldn't it be nice if he said, now don't worry, because when Jesus comes, your whole spirit, soul, and body will be preserved blameless. But he didn't say that. And the reason he didn't say that is because the responsibility is yours and mine. But now let's get to the, the nuts and bolts of it. Notice he tells us that the three, that the complete makeup of man in other words, the way God created man is a threefold nature, spirit and soul and body. Now, if you look after, read after, whatever, research, whatever word you want to put on it, after most of the great leaders in the church, modern-day leaders in the church, you'll find that very few of them acknowledge spirit, soul, and body. Most... Well, for example, I'll give you a good example. Billy Graham, thank God for all the good things he's done in the body of Christ. Billy Graham was asked by a group of ministers, what's the difference between spirit and soul? And he said, well, I thought they were the same. Now, he's gotten people saved on every continent of the world, I guess. And he thought the spirit and the soul were the same. Well, folks, if the spirit and soul are the same, then why would Paul identify them as two separate aspects or parts of the makeup of man Instead of just saying, and I pray God your whole spirit and body or your whole soul and body be preserved blameless. If the Holy Ghost is prompting Paul to say this, then this is the threefold makeup of man. And consequently, it would be just as scriptural for us to substitute the spirit and the body as one and the same as to say the spirit and the soul are one and the same. See, if we're going to change the scripture and say that it's, it's not the way that the Bible says that it is, but instead it's what we think it to be then we could make it up any way we wanted to, couldn't we? Well, we know the body and the spirit are not the same, don't we? Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm uh, One of the things that uh, the Lord impressed upon me, uh, I was seeking him and, and asking the Lord, what, uh, what do you want me to do on Wednesday night? We finished this uh, series on uh, the Gospel of John before the holidays were over. And... Um, some of you may have figured out by now that I am known for long series on Wednesdays. Um, this one may go forever. And one of the things I like about Wednesday nights is I don't have to be in a hurry for anything. 
I can just take my time and deal with it in any way we want to and, and, uh, and just go whichever direction the Lord directs us to go, takes us, you know. Well, that's what I'm planning to do with this. So we may go over and over and over some of these things. We may backtrack. We, I don't know exactly where I'm going. I picked a title that lets me go anywhere. Notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is talking about the difference of uh, between the... Or, well, just lo- notice the contrast that he makes. Verse 16, 2 Corinthians four sixteen. He says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Now here Paul talks about two different men, an outward man and an inward man. Well, this is the reason why some people will say that man is twofold, a twofold being instead of a threefold being. Because in other places, like this, Paul will contrast the outward man and the inward man, and he doesn't say anything about spirit, soul, and body. So since he only mentions the inward man versus the outward man, we know the outward man has got to be the body. And since he talks about that being in a contrast with the inward man, then people have put their own interpretation on what that inward man is. Notice what he goes on to say. We'll deal with that before we finish this evening, or at least I'm planning to. Skip down with me to chapter 5, verse 1. You know that Paul didn't write in chapter and verses any more than you write a letter in chapter and verse. Paul's talking about the same type of, uh, uh, he's talking about the same subject. And he says this, he said, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved. In other words, he's saying when your body uh, decays and decomposes. When you're buried into the ground and your body starts decomposing. Notice what he says about you. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, he doesn't call that you. He's got to be talking about the body, and he doesn't call that you. There are certain keys, in my opinion, there are certain keys that if you understand Paul's frame of reference, and if you understand his perspective on things, then everything he writes opens up and becomes clear. One of the, these keys we're going to get into right here, and that is Paul says the body is the house that you live in. And it's, he never says that it's you. For we know, I like that, we know. A lot of people guess at things. Paul said, we know. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, he's talking about the body, we have a building of God. Notice he didn't say we're going to get a building of God. Notice he's not saying something will happen when you die and you'll get something else. He's saying when your body is placed into the ground and begins to dissolve, return to dust, you have. In other words, this is the condition you are in now. We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, this is in the context of verse 16 where he's talking about the inward man versus the outward man. So he's saying when the outward man dissolves, your inward man is eternal. So when we find out what the inward man is, we can know for a certainty that that inward man is eternal. That's what lives on. Skip down with me to verse 6. He says, therefore, we are always confident. I like Paul. He talks about what we know. So many Christians are guessing at things. Paul said, we're confident. Here's what we know. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Now, notice he says we. He's talking about the real you. He's talking about us as believers. He said, here's what we know about ourselves, that while we are at home in the body. Now, if you went to the street where I live at, you can find my house, but I'm not home. 
My house is not me. My house is the place that I live, but it's not me. That's what he says about the body. He says the body is the house that you live in. Again, he's contrasting the inward man versus the outward man. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. You know, we pull that out of context, and we use that for a whole variety of ways and places and applications, and it fits in a lot of different ways. But now he's talking about the difference in walking by faith versus sight as far as living on the earth in the flesh as opposed to living in heaven with Jesus. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, verse 8, and willing rather to be absent. We are absent. We are willing to be absent. We, the real you, are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. To be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He said, we'd rather be absent from the body. Notice how he says that. Absent from the body. I'm absent from my home. So are you. Wherever you live, the house is there, but you ain't there. It's not good English, but you got the point. You're absent from your home. That's what happens when your body is laid into the ground. When what the world calls death, physical death, overtakes us, and the body is buried, that's what happens. You become absent from the body. But don't worry, then you become present with the Lord. You didn't agonize over being absent or leaving your home this evening because you knew where you were going. You were going somewhere you wanted to go. At least I hope you did. That's what he says about the Spirit. That's what he says about the inward man. He said the inward man would rather be absent from the body so he can be present with the Lord. Paul said the same thing about his own experience in Philippians chapter 1. He goes into a little detail personally where he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians chapter 1, I think that's verse uh, 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Most people don't think of dying as gain, do they? Most people try to avoid it in every way they can. Paul said, for to me, because of what he understood about the inward man and the outward man, because of what he understood about spiritual things, because of what he understood about heaven. Remember, Paul talked about the man that he knew in Christ. He said, I knew a man in Christ, whether in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. Now, everybody agrees he's talking about himself. How is it that Paul couldn't tell if he was in the body or out of the body? How is it that he was unable to determine whether he, the real him, the inward man, was in the body or out of the body? Now, if we'd been with him, we'd have known. Been real easy to tell if his body left or not. He said, how be it in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Such a one was caught up into heaven. Third heaven. Into the throne room of God, in other words. He said, I heard things that I'm not able to tell you. Not that he's unwilling to tell them, but that he didn't have words to describe. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, the reason that I couldn't tell whether I was in the body or out of the body is the man, the real you, is the same whether you're at home in the body or whether you're absent from the body. All of his faculties were in in operation. He couldn't tell because he wasn't missing anything. 
So the inward man seems to operate the same apart from the body as it does in the body, with the exception of contact in this physical realm. Whether in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. Paul had that experience, and it probably made a difference in the way he looked at death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He goes further and he says, but if I live in the flesh, notice how he says that, live in the flesh. But but if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose, I won't not. In other words, he says, I'm not really sure yet. Notice he says it's a choice. He's talking about living in the flesh as a choice. Does he know something about the, the authority that the inward man has that most of us don't know? Most of us don't look at living and dying as a choice. I mean, he's certainly not talking about taking his own life. He's talking about fulfilling the plan of God. Is there something about living in the flesh and the authority of the inward man who is at home in this body that he understands that the rest of the church world doesn't get? What other conclusion can we draw? What I shall choose, I what not. I haven't decided yet. For I am in a strait betwixt two. Another translation says, for I'm having a hard time deciding. And I think that's completely accurate. For I am in a strait betwixt two. Well, what's the strait? What's the problem? What's the dilemma you have here, Paul? I am in a strait betwixt two having a desire. I have a desire to, to depart. Having a desire to depart. I want to go. The man on the inside wants to go. The man on the inside wants to leave, wants to depart from the flesh and to be with Christ, which is far better. He didn't just say it was better. He said it was far better. We lose loved ones and we feel so bad because of our loss. We don't feel bad for them, though. And when we have things in right perspective, then the going, the home going of a Christian should be a wonderful thing. We can cry all we want to about how we're going to miss them, but we ought to be stopping every now and then and think, but oh, think about them. So many times people have the idea that, well, why don't we just raise them from the dead? Go ahead and try. See if you can find anybody that wants to come back. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh. Notice the way he says it. Nevertheless, to abide. For who to abide? For me to abide. Stay here in the flesh is more needful for you. What's Paul getting to? He's showing us that he, the man on the inside, is the same whether he lives here or whether he lives in heaven. He's the same. Now turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Let me show you something else Paul said about this. And again, I think this is one of the keys. It it adds to what we said before. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Notice in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 14, 14. Paul said, for if I, notice notice who he calls I. He's talking about himself. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth. So who is the I that he's talking about? He's talking about the spirit man. Paul always calls himself the spirit man. Never calls himself the body. He refers to his body, but always as a possession. It would do you some real good 
to look at yourself that way. This body that we put so much attention into, this body that contacts the natural realm that dominates so many Christians' lives, it's just a possession. It's just a place you live. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. Back up with me to verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 2. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue. Well, verse 14 already tells us who's speaking in the unknown tongues. That's the spirit man. The man on the inside that speaks in an unknown tongue. Who's he contacting? Speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaks mysteries. What's he saying? Just as we can, can clearly identify that the outward man or the body contacts the physical realm. It's the spirit man that contacts God. He just said so. It's the spirit that contacts God. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 16. Let's look at something else here. Jesus explained some things to us. We're, uh, we're just going to get as far as laying a foundation this evening and then we'll build on, on that from there. So look with me to Luke chapter 16. Jesus gave us more information about this. Inward man versus outward man and what happens when the body is laid into the earth than anybody else. And who would know better than Jesus? I mean, the one that comes from heaven ought to know how it works, shouldn't he? Notice in Luke chapter 16, let's start in verse 19. He said, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. Now let me stop right here and say, there's a lot of people in the body of Christ that will say, well, this is just a parable. You can't take it literally as just a parable. It's impossible for Jesus, especially for Jesus, to use the word certain in a parable. Because a parable is something that represents or stands for something else. For example... In Mark chapter 4, Jesus said, I think it's verse 26, he said, So is the kingdom of God as if a man should should cast seed into the earth. In other words, he's saying the kingdom of God is like planting seed. There's no like in this, this story that Jesus tells us. In fact, not only does he not say that the kingdom of God is like something or the kingdom of heaven is like something here, he says there was a certain, absolute, real guy named Lazarus. Real guy, rich guy. He's saying this was a real life event. That's what certain man means. That's what certain beggar means. That means these guys really lived. Jesus is telling us something by revelation of the Holy Ghost that really took place. That's how we can know for a certainty. This is how it works because Jesus said it was certain. Well, certain means sure thing, doesn't it? So here's the sure thing way it worked. In Jesus' day. Now remember Jesus is telling us about something that happened before he was raised from the dead. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You'll see right here that in Jesus' day, prior to his resurrection, neither one of these guys went to be present with the Lord. Here's how it worked before Jesus' resurrection. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed from the crumbs, which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores and it came to pass that the beggar died. And what do we understand by that? That means his physical life ended, right? And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Who was carried? Him. 
the inward man. The real man. Notice he didn't cease to exist just because his body was laid into the ground. Doesn't tell us what happened to his body. Being a beggar, the rich man's going to die and it's going to tell us he had a funeral. We don't know that about the beggar, but we know that his body had to be disposed of in some way or another. But him, the real man, Lazarus, was carried by the angels. We know angels are spirit beings, don't we? Paul told us that. Are they not all ministering spirits? Sent forth the minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation. So notice the spirits, the angels, the ministering spirits contacted, had contact with this man's spirit, Lazarus' spirit, and carried him into Abraham's bosom. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. That means his body, right? And in hell, he, the rich man, notice he didn't stop existing either. And in hell, he lift up his eyes, being in torments and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that they which would pass from hence, from us to you, can't. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence where you are in hell. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he, Abraham, replied, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, obviously, that's speaking of Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something. We know something about the spirit, soul, and body. That's the threefold makeup of man, threefold nature of man. We know that Paul talked about the inward man and the outward man. We know the body can't be the inward man because it's the outward man. So who is the inward man? Is the inward man the spirit? Is the inward man the soul? Or is the inward man the spirit and the soul together? It's got to be one of those combinations or one of those options. There's no other option there is. Some people try to say, well, the heart is a a different part of the man altogether. Now, the heart usually refers to the spirit. We can prove that by a number of scriptures. Besides that, the heart couldn't be a separate part because that would make man a four-part being rather than a three-part being. And we already have scriptural proof that man is a threefold being. With his body, he contacts the natural realm or the realm of man. With his spirit, he contacts the spirit realm. Already found scriptures to prove that. What about the soul? Again, some people will say, well, I thought the soul and the spirit were the same. Hebrews 4.12 says that the spirit and the soul are divided by the word of God. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder. That means dividing between the soul and the spirit. If they're the same, they couldn't be divided. Right? So where's the soul in operation here? Well, you see him right here in this story that Jesus told. Notice the spirit is alive. In both Lazarus and, and the, the rich man. But notice the rich man. It tells us a lot about the rich man. His cognitive function is still operational. He recognizes Lazarus. How would he recognize Lazarus? Because he knew him here on the earth. He doesn't necessarily know everybody, but he does know Lazarus. And he figures out who Abraham is pretty quick. 
So his mental faculties are in, in operation. And then notice his desire is there too. He says, send Lazarus with water on his finger to cool my tongue. So his desire is there. Notice something else. When he finds out that won't work, he says, well, make sure that my brothers don't come. I've got five brothers. Make sure they don't come to this place. What would we call that? It certainly has to do with his will. He wills for them not to have the same experience that he's having, right? But it might even go further than that. Could we say it was compassion? We certainly couldn't say it was the love of God. Because if there was love of God within him, he wouldn't have been there in the first place. It was the separation from God that caused him to be in hell and Lazarus to be in Abraham's bosom. By the way, Abraham's bosom is what Jesus referred to the thief on the cross next to him as paradise. He was comforted, a place of comfort. So we see his intelligence is functioning, talking about the rich man in hell. His intelligence is functioning. His will is intact. His emotions are involved. He has emotional concern for his brothers. And not only that, but he has some sort of feeling because he wants to be cool from the, from the flame. So emotionally, things are still operational. It sounds like he hadn't lost anything by the departure of his body or the laying down of his body, doesn't it? So what do we see? We see that the spirit of man is the eternal part that contacts God or contacts the spirit realm. Therefore, the soul must be the mind, not the brain. Difference in the brain and the mind. The brain is in the body with uh, buried back on earth. But his mind is intact. His will is intact. His emotions are functional. That's the makeup of the soul. The mind, the will, and the emotions. Well, now, wait a minute, Pastor Mike. Why aren't the emotions a part of the spirit? Well, think of all the scriptures where the Bible talks about walking in the spirit and then not doubting in our heart. You know as well as I do that your emotions are one of the greatest tools that the devil uses to try to pull you away from the word of God to make you doubt. Emotions can't be spiritual if they, beca- if they can become your enemy or the enemy of your spirit. Can you see that? Emotions are part of the soul, have to be. So look at the rich man. He's an eternal being. He's going to be in hell forever. And along with his spirit, which is in hell because he doesn't know God, His mind, his will, and his emotions are all functioning. So the spirit man has a soul. So we could take 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23 and say this. Man is a spirit, he has a soul, and he lives in a body. Can you see that? Now turn with me over to, um, uh, where do we want to go? Look with me over to Romans chapter 2. Notice something that Paul said. And again, I, I, when, you, when you understand Paul's perspective on things, what I sometimes call Paul's baseline, when you understand the foundation that Paul is working from, then so many of the things that he said that confuses other people becomes clear. Paul said in Romans chapter 2, talking about salvation, let's start reading in verse uh, 28. 
He says, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Now, remember, Paul's whole ministry was, uh, was attacked by the Jews in everywhere he went. The reason he was attacked by the Jews is because Paul said, Paul's preaching was, Jesus paid the price, you don't have to keep the law anymore. Well, the Jews didn't want him trying to destroy their religion or taking people away from them because that diminishes the place of the priest. And so he was persecuted everywhere he went. Now, Paul is trying to identify, here's what the Jews, who were the people of God in the Old Testament, represented all along. Here's why it's about Jesus and not about the law. Because he's saying Judaism is not about being born of a certain race of people. Well, that went over big. Because you've got to realize the Jews have been calling everybody else in the world dogs. We're special. Everybody else is dogs. We're joined to God because he gave us the law through Moses. And everybody else in the world is, is second class, if, if that. Now, Paul is saying a Jew is not one outwardly. A Jew is not somebody that's been circumcised in the flesh or somebody that, uh, that was born of the seed of Abraham. That's not what a Jew is anymore. A Jew is not one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. He's talking about the inward man. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Notice he calls the heart the spirit. Do you know when you got saved, it didn't change your ethnic ethnicity, but it did change your family of origin. You became a Jew. How many of you ever had the, the Bible, uh, had the devil tell you that the blessings of the Jews didn't belong to everybody today? You see a lot of good things that God said about the Jews, especially material things in the Old Testament. And the devil's right there on your shoulders saying, well, that, that just belongs to the Jews. Well, he's right. But who are the Jews? The Jews are the ones that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. Paul said this to the Galatians. He said, not all Israel is Israel. In other words, it's not about who you're born of naturally. It's who you're born of spiritually. Turn with me over to John chapter 4. Well, John chapter 3 first. We'll look at John chapter 3 and then move over to John chapter 4. You know, I'm going to have to go to the Old Testament before I go there. I'm going to go to Ezekiel chapter 36. We're going to come back to John 3, so if you already found it, then... Hold your finger there, hold your place, something. Ezekiel chapter 36, here's what the prophet said in the Old Testament. Now, keep this in mind, this is part of the law of Moses, not the Ten Commandments, but the the Old Testament is called the law and the prophets. These are the prophets, the words of the prophets, that as far as the Jews were concerned, were to be kept and held to and adhered to just as much as the Ten Commandments. So here's what the prophet said as he was inspired of God, looking forward to the, to the work that Jesus would do in the resurrection that, uh, and what it would bring us. Notice it says in verse 25, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and all your idols will I cleanse you. He's talking about salvation. Here's what salvation is going to look like. A new heart also will I give you. What does he mean by heart? A new spirit will I put within you. He's talking about the heart being the spirit. See, Paul wasn't the only one that did this. He got it from the Old Testament. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. 
In other words, if the heart is the spirit, he's saying, I'll take away the hardened spirit, the one that's dead to God, and I'll give you one that's alive to God, tender, open, willing to receive him. And after putting a new spirit within us, he said, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So what is he saying? We know that the Holy Spirit is that which regenerates the spirit of man. So he's saying the Holy Spirit puts a new spirit in you and then indwells your spirit. Look with me to uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, I believe it is. Verse 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. We know that has to be the spirit. I'll put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. He's talking about the spirit of man. And I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Isn't it good that you don't have to go to some preacher or some priest or somebody to tell you what God's doing for you? You can know him for yourself. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He's got to be talking about salvation there, doesn't he? Now turn with me over to John chapter 3. Knowing that this is in the prophets, written in the prophets, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. You got two prophets in the Old Testament that talk about salvation as being a recreation of the, of the spirit of man. A regeneration. Whatever word you want to use. A new spirit in man and God's spirit in us. And notice what Nicodemus, who's a ruler of the Jews, says. Beginning in verse one, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. In other words, he says, I'm convinced by the works. The stuff that you're doing is proof to me that God is on your side. Would have been nice if all the Jews had been that smart. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That seems like a strange response, doesn't it? Jesus, we know by the miracles that you're doing that God is with you, that God is on your side, God has empowered you, and Jesus says you've got to be born again. Why? Because Jesus is focusing on the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thinks the kingdom of God is the miracles that he saw. Jesus is saying contact with the kingdom of God or entrance into the kingdom of God comes only one way. That's not by seeing miracles, but by a change of spirit, a change of spiritual nature. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is only thinking naturally. Now, remember, he knows the prophets. He should be saying, wait a minute. Jeremiah and Ezekiel talked about something about like that. Is that what you mean? He's a ruler of the Jews. That means he's a teacher. He's a master of Israel. Jesus is going to say, you're a master of Israel and you don't know this stuff. Nicodemus said unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said unto him, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Born of water means natural birth. Born of the spirit means being born again. Notice he says it's being born of the spirit. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What's he saying? He's saying the work of the Holy Ghost is to make you a new spirit. In other words, to change the inward man, to recreate the inward man, the man, uh, recreate man from the inside out. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. Now he uses an example. He says, the wind blows where it listeth or where it wills, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell where it comes or where it goes. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. In other words, people that are born of the Spirit are led by unseen forces. That unseen force is the Holy Spirit. Now get what he's saying. People that are born of the Spirit. In other words, the recreated human spirit is led by unseen forces, meaning the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? In other words, he's saying, What are you teaching the people? This is Messiah 101. That's why the Jews missed it. See, the Jews were looking for for the Messiah to come and and do away with the Roman army, the Roman soldiers and all that stuff. They kept asking Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? That's all they thought about. That's all they cared about. Nobody's thinking about a natural kingdom. When Jesus stood before Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my, my disciples would fight. My kingdom's not of this world. I'm not a threat to you, Pilate. I'm not a threat to the Roman to the Roman government because my kingdom is not of this world. But the Jews are always looking for natural things. I've, I've said this before, but it bears repetition. There's nothing in the Jewish religion that points to heaven. The Jews aren't looking for heaven. They're not looking for a heavenly home. They think that Abraham, who sojourned in the wilderness... Because he had a, a, he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. They think that was just about him waiting for Jesus or the Messiah, not Jesus, waiting for the Messiah or the promise of God to come restore Israel to a place of prominence to dominate the world. See, the Jews want to dominate just like everybody else wants to dominate. They just want to do it because God's on their side. And they missed entirely what Jesus said that he, or what God had said through the prophets that Jesus would come and bring. Now skip with me over to chapter four, John chapter four. Here's what Jesus is talking to the woman at the well of Samaria. You remember they get into a conversation. She's surprised that he would talk to her because she's uh, considered to be lower class to the Jews. Jesus uh, tells, says something about her marital history. He says, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He says, Jesus said, well, you're right. You've had five, and the guy you're living with now is not your husband, which tells us that as far as God is concerned, living together is not the same as having a husband. I know that doesn't make a lot of people happy, but that's what Jesus said. It also shows us that God recognizes marriage and divorce, remarriage and divorce and remarriage, I should say. Otherwise, he'd say, yeah, you had one husband, and after that, you've messed up five more times. But he didn't. And then so the woman said unto him, verse 19, Sir, I perceive thou, as a, thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Get this. She says, wow, here's a prophet that told me things that nobody else could know about me. Where are we supposed to worship? Now, 
maybe it's just me. But if I've got somebody that's got a direct line to God with, with revelation, supernatural revelation ability, I'm not going to try to find out what hill am I supposed to stand on. That's what she does. Here's the controversy. Our fathers say, our fathers worship in this mountain, but you say, you Jews say, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. He's talking about the church age. He's saying it won't matter. Judaism won't matter. Jerusalem won't be the issue in just a very short time. You worship what you know not, or you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Well, he's right about that. He's right because the prophets told them what salvation was going to be. It's going to be about a new heart being placed within us and God putting his spirit in our new spirit. So he said, you know, worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation of the, is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers. Everybody say true worshipers. That means there can be false worshipers. The hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship God in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship him. God is a spirit. Notice he didn't say God is spirit. Like some cloud that floats around in the air. He said God is a spirit. God is a spirit. And they that worshiped him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Folks, um, I don't think this is a judgment. This is an observation, but I don't think it's a judgment. You decide for yourself. In my opinion, the church world knows nothing about worshiping in spirit. The charismatics think they do because they think that means singing in tongues. And it's not. Worshiping in spirit is the manner in which we live because we have been recreated by the Holy Spirit from within. He's talking lifestyle. He's not talking about lifting our hands a certain way or singing some song. He's talking about lifestyle. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And then Jesus identifies himself to her as the Messiah. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 1. We'll close with this. Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26. Here's the creation account. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Folks, image and likeness have got to be two separate things. We usually read that and we think he's saying the same thing. Let's make man in our image. In other words, let's make man to look like us. Well, then what's likeness? Image means resemblance. What's likeness? Likeness is the word sameness. Let's make man to look like us and be like us. Now, we know what God looks like. Moses said, show me your glory. God said, well, you can't look on my face because nobody can look on my face and live. That was true before anybody could be born again. Well, that tells us God has a face. Because if Moses couldn't look on his face, that means God has to have one. So then God said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put you in this cleft of the rock, the crack in the rock over there, and I'll put my hand over you. So God has to have a hand. 
And he said, I'll pass by and I'll remove my hand and let you see my back parts, which means God has back parts. Now, you can't have back parts unless you got front parts. Because otherwise you couldn't distinguish between parts, one parts and another parts. It sounds kind of like God looks like us. It sounds like man was made in the similitude to resemble God. Doesn't it? That's what this is saying. Let us make man in our own image to resemble us. But what does likeness mean? Likeness means same in nature. In other words, God made man as much like God as he could possibly make him. We already know from John 4, 24 that God's a spirit. So if we're made in the image and after the likeness of God, then that means by definition, we have to be in the same nature, created in the same nature as him. God made you a spirit being. Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness and let them have dominion. Notice spirit beings were given dominion. Now, folks, realize that Jesus was God prior to coming to the earth, right? He preexisted with the Father. My opinion is, I think it's all the times you see the, the appearance of God in the Old Testament, that was Jesus. He's identified over and over again as the creator, and the Bible says Jesus is the one that created the earth. So I think every time that I think God in the burning bush, I think that was Jesus. I think God appearing to Abraham, I think that was Jesus. I think the covenant that was made in Genesis chapter 15 between God, uh, literally between Jesus and Abraham, that had to be Jesus. So I think it was Jesus before he was ever, before he ever took on a flesh and bone body. Now, the Bible says in John chapter 1 that in in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh, and the Word was with God, and the Word uh, was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What that means is God, who is a spirit, I'm talking about Jesus when I use the name God, Jesus, who was a spirit, took on a fleshly body. Did that make him any less God? Did it make him any less eternal? Did it make him anything less in any way other than where it says he laid aside his heavenly power and glory that came to the earth? Was he any different once he took on the fleshly body than before he took on the fleshly body other than laying down his heavenly power and glory? Nope. Not one bit different. That's why the Bible talks about the man on the inside. Paul spoke of the, the salvation experience, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation. You as a spirit being have been recreated by Jesus' work on the cross. To be restored to the image and likeness of God. To have dominion on the earth. That's what the salvation experience is all about. It's about a restoration to man's original state. Now, that was only done in part because once sin came on the scene, our bodies were tainted with sin. When God first made Adam and Eve, there was no, there was no end to their existence. They would have lived in that state forever. But once sin came on the scene, then their bodies became subject to sin and death. But once Jesus came to restore us, to sameness with the Father. 
then the only effect sin has is now upon our bodies. That's why Paul said the outward man is decaying. But the inward man is renewed day by day. You'll never be any older spiritually than you are now. You'll know more as you grow. You'll mature, but you'll never be any older. But boy, we sure know about that outward man decaying, don't we? I don't know about you, but I'm fighting it every step of the way. But no matter how you fight, no matter how you believe God, your outward body is still decaying. Right? Not that inward man. He's renewed day by day. He's renewed day by day. There's a lot of things that the Bible says about us as being spirit beings and a lot of benefits that it can bring to us. But like I said earlier, it would do you a world of good. It would help your spiritual development in in great ways for you to recognize, maybe even say to yourself every day, I am a spirit being. I have a soul and I live in a body. Because as the Bible speaks of carnal Christians, Christians that have not yet matured and some never will by choice, not because that's God's plan or design or anything else. Where the Bible talks about carnal Christians, it means body rule Christians. In other words, Christians have not become acquainted with the fact that they are spirit beings and can live above the natural realm. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for creating us in your image. You could have made this world any way you wanted to, but you chose to make man in your image. You chose to make us eternal beings, Father. Subject not just to the laws of nature, as the outward man is, but subject to the laws of God. We know the natural man is not subject to the law of God, Father. Therefore, it's important for us to recognize that we are made in your image. Father, forgive us for the attention that we give to natural things at the expense of our spirits. Forgive us for being distracted by the things of the flesh and not giving proper attention to the spiritual things. Father, cause us to realize and to remember who we are of, that we are your children, children of God, no longer children of the devil, and that we might live up to that great calling that you placed upon us by causing us to be part of your family. Help us to remember who we are, Father. And to walk above this natural realm as you designed and planned for us to be. Help us to realize your plan and purpose for our lives. And fulfill it as we commit ourselves to you. We love you, Father. We thank you so much for Jesus for the great plan of redemption, the fact that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, and raised us to be seated in heavenly places at your right hand. Father, that we might develop in spirit and live up to that great place that you've raised us to. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.